Thank you. Thank you for those kind words, Jarrett. I, too, want to uh, say Happy Father's Day to all the dads. And even though we're in a Girl Bosses series, it's my hope and prayer that God has something for you today uh, in this message as well. You know, when I run into people these days who know me well, uh, and they say, how are you? Uh, I say, oh, you know, same old, same old. And they smile because the people who know me well know that I'm in a particularly challenging place uh, these days. I'm in the midst of an emotionally draining, uh, really heartbreaking season regarding my former church. And for the past five years or so, I've made Soul City uh, our church home. But for a long time, I was a part of a leadership of a church for 25 years. And many of you are aware of this, and some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. Um, please don't start Googling for information uh, about that church. Um, but what I do need you to know in the context of what we're talking about today is that I have been uh, a part of exposing a pattern of behavior of leadership there that is another tragic episode in the Me Too Church Two movement. And obviously, we are all seeing a very dramatic moment in our culture where there have been accusations, what's come to light is abuses of power, as well as sexual misconduct in the areas of entertainment and sports and academia and business, and sadly, also the church. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I wonder if it's possible for men and women to serve together with love and respect without it turning into a moral failure. I was sitting up in the balcony right up there a couple weeks ago when Jarrett and Jeannie launched this series. And at the close of their message, if you were here, you know we stood arm in arm. And we were trying to symbolize the unity of men and women working side by side. But in all honesty, and I don't know if this is true for you, sometimes I get discouraged and I wonder if maybe the examples of wrongdoing that we have seen will lead to an overreaction, where men and women feel so afraid and awkward that we sort of run to our separate corners. Sometimes the church worldwide overreacts and, and gets all Quaker-like and divides a dividing line down the middle and men are over here and women are over there. Or we decide to adopt 20 more rules about how we can never be alone together with someone of the other gender in an elevator or an office or a restaurant. And many of us find ourselves asking, is there another way? And to that question, I want to proclaim today with a resounding yes, absolutely. There is hope and there is another way that God designed for all of us. Today we're going to talk about a pathway for men and women to flourish together in work as well as in ministry. And I'm going to be sharing some lessons from the early church and also from my own journey. Now as we always do at Soul City, we turn to the Bible uh, for wisdom. This is our truth source. So I want to invite you to grab the Bible that's in front of you or under your seat so that we can look together. Turn to page 922, 922, Romans uh, chapter 16. The woman that we are going to learn about today is a little-known woman in the Bible. Her name is Phoebe. And not enough people know about her, but fortunately, uh, we have found an ancient picture that gives you what she looked like, likely. So here's Phoebe, just in case you're wondering who I'm talking about. Okay. I actually can't wait to tell you about the real Phoebe. And uh, in the Bibles that you have, we're going to talk a little bit first about the background of Phoebe. We are reading a part of the conclusion of Paul's letter to the Romans. 
he's wrapping things up in this chapter. He's like giving his final thoughts. And the two verses that we're going to read are the only information we have about Phoebe in the whole Bible. And yet, in just about 50 words, Paul gives us a boatload of vital information about this remarkable leader. So let's read together. Paul writes, I commend you to our sister, Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centuria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been a benefactor of many people, including me. We're going to come back in a moment to those words in bold because they're not always translated that way, and that is hugely significant. Paul is sending this letter from Corinth. That was a center of business in Greece. It was a thriving city full of travelers and traders and sailors at the crossroads between Asia and Europe. But it was a very dark place spiritually. Phoebe lived in like a suburb called Centuria, which was a port city about six to nine miles outside of Corinth. And she was a part of a very lively Christian congregation there. But what did Phoebe actually do in the church? Well, to answer that question, we have to do a little bit of detective work. It's going to feel like school for a moment, but we need to look at the original Greek language used by Paul. Paul says that Phoebe was a diakonos. This is the word from which we get our word deacon. It's been translated in a variety of ways. Sometimes it's deacon, minister, servant, or helper. The word is used in other letters by Paul to describe those who are ministers of the word. But it's very telling that when it comes to using diakonos describing male leaders, it's almost always translated in English, minister or deacon. But in many translations, not the one that we have here, in many of them, when it's describing a female, they use the word servant. Now, there's nothing wrong, of course, with being a servant. That's a wonderful thing. But scholars generally agree that Phoebe had a recognized ministry and responsibility in her local church. She was a leader. The second key word describing Phoebe is the Greek word prostatis. And this word means benefactor or helper. But if Paul wanted, often translations say helper for Phoebe, but if Paul wanted to call her a helper, there's another Greek word he would have used. Phoebe was more than a helper. This word benefactor actually means to be at the head of, to rule, to care for. So she was a highly respected and influential person in the society of that time. In fact, leadership and benefaction went hand in hand. She's also described it as a patron. We don't use that word too often, but Paul uses it to describe a person who stands by in case of need. In classical Greek, it was used to describe a person who was a trainer in the Olympic Games, who was standing by the athletes to make sure that they were properly trained, not overtrained, and to meet whatever needs they had. And so Phoebe is described as a champion who stood up for other people. So putting this all together, what do we know about Phoebe? Well, first of all, there's a very good chance she was single. Because usually when women were mentioned who had a husband, the husband is mentioned. Here, no husband is mentioned. She could have been a widow or possibly never married. We can also discern that Phoebe was a woman of means. Back in the early church, they didn't meet in rooms like this. Um, they met in people's homes, specifically wealthy homes. And as many as 10% of these sponsors or patrons were women. Phoebe was likely an astute businesswoman who allowed the church to meet in her home. She was generous and sacrificial. Paul said she had been the benefactor of many people, 
including him. If Phoebe could give all of us a message today in this moment in which we find ourselves, what do you think she would say? I think there's like three, at least three, big messages that would echo down through the ages from her life. And the first one sounds like a recent commercial for Diet Coke. The ad campaign says, just do you. I have no idea what that has to do with Diet Coke, but that's their current campaign. <laughs> now that may sound trite and overly simplistic, but go with me for just a moment. When it comes to men and women serving in God's church and in the world at large, I believe that God is challenging us to lean into the gifts, the unique gifts that he entrusted to us. It's not wise to try to be like someone else or to force something that isn't life-giving for you. I can remember growing up in a church where they would often get up on Sunday morning and they would stand at the front and they would make desperate announcements, announcements for certain volunteer needs that they had, particularly in Sunday school for the children. And as a result, I have a feeling that my math teacher in high school heard those announcements and decided that he should step up and teach high school Sunday school. The problem was, though this man was probably scary smart about math, he was a terrible teacher. He didn't like people and certainly didn't like kids very much. And so now I had to see him Monday through Friday at school and then on Sundays at church. I was delighted to learn a few years later that he switched volunteer roles. He got out of that work and he was counting the offering and also um, helping with the church budget. It was a much, much better fit for him. God delights when you and I play the parts in church or in the world that he made us to play. If you don't like children, please don't serve in Soul City Kids. We, we really don't want you up there. Um, if you're not into cooking, don't join the culinary team. I believe there's a spot for you that fits you just right, a way to serve where you're going to find joy and fulfillment. Just do you. Phoebe used her business savvy, her knowledge of theology, her gift of hospitality, her relational skills, and her financial resources to serve the local church. I want to say a big thank you to modern-day benefactors and patrons like Phoebe. Think for a moment about the role of a patron. Do you know we actually have several people like that here at Soul City? These are people who are blessed with resources and give over and above to make ministry possible here. They do it behind the scenes, and they wouldn't want you to know their names. I'm dying to tell you some of their names, but I'm not going to do that. But when Soul City began, it was a lot of young people who most of them did not have very much money. God used many people to step in, some who intentionally moved to this area so that they could open their homes and help support this, some of whom sacrificed in huge ways to buy the land uh, that we're on and to build this building. So to those of you who are patrons and benefactors of this church, I say thank you on behalf of all of us, and I say just do you. Keep doing what you're doing. Now, because it's Father's Day, I also want to say a word to dads among us. Some of you are new dads. Uh, some of you have been at it for a while. It's really important to just do you as a dad. When we first had our daughters, we'd already been married nine years before we had children, and I know that my husband Warren was nervous about what kind of dad he was be, whether he would be effective as a father. Um, his own father passed away when he was only eight, so he didn't have a long uh, history of a model uh, of a dad. 
he doesn't like barbecuing. I mean, there's lots of things that he wondered, you know, is this even going to work for me? And I've really loved watching him be a father consistent with who God made him to be. Our girls expressed an early interest in sports, which fit with him. He taught Sam how to shoot a free throw, and he taught Johanna how to long jump. He's very good with numbers and with money, so from an early age, he taught them how to save and have their allowance and come up with a little bit of a budget. But my favorite Warren fatherhood story happened when it was time to go to father-daughter camp. This was a church camp way up in the upper peninsula of Michigan without any creature comforts whatsoever, and he's definitely not a camper. But at night in the cabin, my husband decided to teach all those 10-year-old girls how to play poker. <laughs> which I'm sure went over really well um, with the leaders. A couple years later, um, my younger daughter, it was her turn to go to father-daughter camp, and Warren, just, he just was so not into the outhouse thing and all of that. So secretly, they colluded with each other and came up with a different plan, and they came to me and said, here's going to be Johanna's version of father-daughter camp. We're going to do a long weekend up at the Mall of America in Minneapolis. <laughs> and we're gonna explore all the shops and go to movies and stuff. So I took Warren aside and I said, honey, you know, part of father-daughter camp is the spiritual dimension of that experience. He goes, oh, we decided we're gonna talk about God for a few minutes in the car on the way up and trust me, you know, it'll be, it'll be really good. I've loved watching Warren do fatherhood the best way he knew how, being himself. And I must say he's been magnificent at it. So to all of you dads, I challenge you, figure it out. Just do you as a dad. You are precisely the right dad for your child or children. Love them the best way you know how, and one day they will rise up and call you blessed, as my girls do. All right, back to Phoebe's voice echoing through the ages. She would tell us to just do you, and then I think she would also challenge us by saying, you know what, everybody? We are better together. If we glance at the entire chapter of Romans 16, what stands out vividly is that the Apostle Paul was working with an amazing team of men and women, and he calls them out by name, and he specifically affirms them for contributions they made to the ministry. If you look back at verse 1, Paul used two key words. One was the, ver the verb commend. I commend you about Phoebe. And this means to present, to mention, or praise as worthy of confidence, Notice, kindness, etc. It is formal kind of praise when you commend someone. You see, since Paul could not go, he chose Phoebe to leave on an 800-mile journey to Rome. He asked her to deliver his letter to the Romans, arguably the most significant of all of Paul's letters. Paul emphasized Phoebe's qualifications because he couldn't phone or email ahead. She was just going to show up and so he wanted to the, the Romans to know, this woman, this leader, has my full endorsement. Notice that Paul also calls Phoebe his sister. He uses this word to describe a spiritual relationship, just like he called some of his male co-workers his brothers. Paul knew from experience what it was like to share leadership with both men and women. He was honoring of all his ministry partners, regardless of gender. And we see in the early church this beautiful picture of how God intended for us to work together. But sadly, throughout history, many of us have not experienced that kind of teamwork. John Dawson said this, 
The wounds inflicted by men and women on each other constitute the fundamental fault line running beneath all other human conflict. It is the biggest reconciliation issue of all outside of our need to be reconciled to God. I believe that all of us have a deep down desire for very healthy brother-sister relationships where we can feel known and supported and challenged to have friendships, real friendships with both genders. Where does this all too often go so terribly wrong? Much of it stems from the power and sexual dynamics between men and women. We're afraid of these dynamics. And all too often, we have seen the misuse of sexuality and the caving into temptation. And that propels us back to our separate corners, hiding from one another or making up more rules. Ruth Haley Barton, in her excellent book, Equal to the Task, wrote these words 20 years ago now. She said, respect is the most powerful antidote to sexual harassment. A man who respects a woman as a multidimensional human being who bears the image of God and is greatly loved by him would never think of reducing her to the single dimension of her physical appearance and sexuality. He would never ask her to choose between career advancement and her sexual purity. He would never violate her personal boundaries. Sexual harassment is always a question of respect or lack of it. You know, my friends, I believe that as we grow in respect for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, and as we focus on our own internal transformation, we talk about that all the time here, becoming more like Jesus, then we will practice the kind of healthy relationships God longs for us to have. We will see one another the way God sees us, as treasured sons and daughters of the Most High God. So let's get really practical for a moment, moving from this big picture vision to like everyday life. Ruth offers some tremendous questions for you and I to ask ourselves. Think about your network of relationships right now at work or in the neighborhood or at church. Here's a few of her questions. First of all, what biases and generalizations do I make about the other sex? For example, do I assume that men do not have feelings or that women are so relational they cannot make tough decisions? What buzzwords or emotional reactions are associated with these generalizations? Is there anything in the behavior or in the culture of my organization that would make members of the other sex feel uncomfortable, unwelcome, or discriminated against? And by the way, don't assume you know the answer to that question. If you're not sure, ask members of the other gender. Do I ever use labels, make jokes, or display cartoons or pictures that might offend members of the other sex? Do I ever schedule work-related events that exclude members of the other sex, such as all-male golf outings or women-only lunches? When I have asked for input only from members of my own sex, do I assume I've gotten all the input I need, or do I need to actively seek contributions from both men and women? And finally, am I significantly more comfortable with members of my own sex than members of the other sex. Why? Am I willing to push beyond my discomfort so that I can be more at ease? I think it bears repeating that respect is the most powerful antidote to sexual harassment. You know, in the church where I grew up, which by the way was a really great church, but I saw very few serving roles that were taken by both men and women. 
All of the Sunday school teachers when I was little, up until that crabby math teacher when I was in high school, all of the other ones were female. All of the board of directors were men. We had one group called the deacons. My dad was a deacon. Those are the people who made all the important decisions and prayed over the spiritual leadership of the church. There was another group called deaconesses, all women, who provided food for funerals and other hospitality needs, but no real leadership role. I never saw a woman in the church I grew up teach on Sunday morning. What a joy for me to wander around Soul City, where I see men and women greeting us, where I see men and women impacting children upstairs, both men and women, where I see men and women who are elders and where we hear from men and women teachers, and most importantly, where I see us treating one another with respect and dignity and great joy. It fills me with a lot of hope. This is a picture of what God intended, and we need to protect this beautiful picture and refuse to allow power or pride or sexual temptation to bring us to sin. It's a delicate thing, this teamwork. May we never take it for granted, and may we do our part, each and every one of us, to make it more beautiful. If you aren't currently on a serving team, I urge you to join one that fits with your passion and then treat all the men and women on that team like your brothers and your sisters, unless you weren't very nice to your own biological brothers and sisters, in which case, raise your standards, okay? <laughs> the third big message we hear from Phoebe is simply this, demand the ball. I actually stole this idea from a recent graduation speech delivered by Olympic soccer athlete Abby Wambach. Abby was describing a soccer scrimmage when she was a teenager where she had a chance to play with one of her heroes, Michelle Akers. Now, Michelle Akers at the time was about 30. And they were in a scrimmage, and then the score was tied towards the end. And then Abby watched, and she said it was if a switch went on in Michelle. She ran to her goalkeeper, and she said, give me the ball. And she marched down the field and scored a goal. And then she did it again and again. Give me the ball. She wanted to step up and take her team to victory. How did Phoebe demand the ball? Well, I don't know if she actually demanded it, to be honest, but she certainly stepped up to the moment. As I've mentioned, this letter was completed, and 800 miles was no small distance. Paul had never been to Rome. Scholars believe that it was Phoebe who was entrusted with the delivery. She was at the very center of Paul's strategic plan to spread God's message from Rome to Spain. But it wasn't simply a drop-off. You know, you're kind of picturing, okay, so she went to Rome and dropped off the letter. That's not how couriers were charged back then. They had the responsibility to explain the letter that they brought. So most likely, Phoebe would have read the letter out loud in a gathering like this. She would have read the letter out loud. Nobody else would have had a copy. And then she would have to answer any questions they might have had. This means she had to fully understand it. The most complex letter theologically that Paul wrote. Paul himself sends this intelligent, capable leader to do this job and represent him. And he makes sure to fully endorse her, laying out her credentials and the role she'd already played in the church. I imagine, don't you, Phoebe looking at this community of faith and particularly looking Paul in the eyes and saying, give me the ball, I can do this. Let me take it. Let me take it to Rome. You know, as I look back on my life so far, I don't see enough moments where I boldly and bravely said, give me the ball. 
To use a basketball analogy, I probably would never have called for the ball at the buzzer because what if I miss the shot? What if I let my team down? Far better to pass it to somebody else and let them take the responsibility. I don't want to risk failure. But in the last few months, God prompted me to take the ball, to step up, and to face my fears. I had no intention of going on record with the media, of allowing my name to appear in print. I was planning to simply tell my story as a support for the other women with no name attached. I was afraid. I was afraid to be misunderstood, to be criticized, and to possibly hurt my reputation in the world of church leaders. But with a deadline looming for the newspaper, I was praying for wisdom. God, is this a moment where you are asking me to demand the ball? I was so scared to get way out of my comfort zone, and I couldn't seem to get an answer. And then my husband spoke to me. He said he would support me whatever I decided, but that he thought my words were good and my perspective needed to be heard. Later, he found a great quote from an ancient Greek philosopher. It says, Xenophon said, it is absurd to ask the gods for victory in a cavalry battle if you do not ride. It was time for me to ride into battle. It was time for me to demand the ball. Give me the ball. Thank you. <laughs> Thank the Lord, I caught the ball. I had absolutely no idea in the last few months all the ways God would stretch me and bring me support. And you know what? I was criticized, and there are many people who don't understand or agree. My biggest fear in life is of people not approving of me, and it's happened all over the place. But here's what I learned. If God calls you to something, if you demand the ball, you can count on him to provide what you need in that moment. He will be faithful. My family, my friends, and the leaders of this church have surrounded me with love and understanding. I'm still in the middle of what often feels like a hot mess, but my Heavenly Father is my refuge and strength. He is faithful and trustworthy, and He is teaching me what it means to be brave. In what areas of your life do you need to demand the ball? Where have you been holding back your full self? You know, some of you need to have a crucial conversation with somebody, and you've known it for a long time. It's time to demand the ball, to take the initiative and make that call. Some of you look at a situation at work or in the community where you live, and you say, I think I need to step in and volunteer. I think it's time for me. This is my moment. Some of you are being called to step into leadership. Maybe you look around this church and you think, oh, I think they're just doing fine. They have plenty of leaders. No, there is a big need for more leaders here. It's time for you to demand the ball. Some of you see some injustice where you are. Discrimination, either racial discrimination, gender discrimination, any kind of discrimination, maybe some bullying. It's time for you to demand the ball and be an advocate. Be a voice for the people who don't seem to have a voice. And dads, might be time for you to demand the ball and step into fatherhood in an even richer and deeper way. Maybe one of your children needs you to challenge them in a new way or invest in them in a new way or love them in a new way. Demand the ball. When God calls you to take that step, he will equip you.
every single time. So when Jarrett and Jeannie challenged us to stand arm in arm, you know what I think was happening in heaven? I think Phoebe and Paul and Priscilla and Aquila and all the other biblical characters were smiling upon us. I think they were saying, yes, God-honoring teamwork side by side is possible and it's a beautiful thing. But for that picture to become reality, you and I each have to take our part, our responsibility. We have to show up fully with the gifts God gave us. Just do you. We have to treat one another, men and women, with respect and dignity and love. And when we're prompted, we have to demand the ball and know that the God who calls us into battle will ride there right with us, giving us everything that we need. I'm going to invite you to stand as we close. You know, we usually give homework here, and usually it's a specific homework assignment. But this time, I was very aware that there's several big ideas in this message, and I don't know which one the Holy Spirit has for you specifically. But I've been praying that he would whisper something to you today. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, and we're going to discern your unique homework assignment. It's going to be unique to you, okay? Bow your heads. First, gracious Father, how thankful we are to be your sons and daughters. And we're grateful that you have a picture of what men and women serving and loving and working together side by side could look like. Thank you for that picture, and may we aspire to being a part of making it a really beautiful picture. And now, Father, there are some here who've heard a whisper from you because they haven't stepped into their area of giftedness yet. I pray that you would help them to discover what that is and to step into it with boldness, to just do them. I pray, Father, that some of us are prompted to have conversations about what it's like in the culture where we are, at work or here at church, the team we're a part of. I pray that we would pay attention to the gender dynamics. I pray that we would ask good questions of one another and make sure that everyone is feeling like things are comfortable and appropriate and loving and respectful. And Father, there's a few who've been nudged here this morning to demand the ball. In some area, you are calling them to be brave. And I pray, Father, that we will step into what you are asking us to do, that we will get past our fears and we will truly believe that you are walking with us and that you would never give us a battle to fight without equipping us. God, we love you. We thank you for your presence among us today. We pray that we will leave here knowing that we are better together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.